Well, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, couple of months almost now, you know that we're in this season of Lent, which as we've been saying week by week is, is not just a journey into the sufferings and death of Jesus. It is that, but it's, it's more than that. On a personal level, it's a journey into deaths of different kinds for us as well. And the reason for that is that Lent is a season of repentance. Or to, or to maybe describe it a little bit more practically, it's a season in which we put ourselves before the Lord and before the Lord's Word and in the presence of God and sometimes in the presence of one another because that can be helpful. We examine our lives and we examine them for the things that Jesus had to suffer and die for. And then when we find those things, we don't ignore them, we don't stuff them, we don't reject them, we don't pretend like we didn't see them. We put them on the table and between us and God, we say, you know what, Lord, this is something that Christ had to suffer and die for. And here's the problem I've got. I've been living for it or I've been living to it. Or I've allowed it at least to live in me and to find life and expression in me. And it's not doing me or anyone else any good. So here's the deal. Lent is the opportunity for me to put that on the table and to say, listen, Jesus died for this. And here's what I now, by the power of God's Spirit and in community with one another, need to do. I need to die to this. And in dying to this, we've said, look, we don't find a death, we find life. We don't find sorrow, we find joy. We don't find bondage. That's what we find if we don't die to these things. They enslave us. What we find is freedom. We learn how truly to live, which is the whole trajectory of the season. It doesn't end in the death of Christ on Good Friday. It ends on resurrection morning. It ends on Easter, which we are moving very purposefully toward. And it's exciting. So with all of that in mind, as we continue with those ideas, we we come today to John chapter 9, where Jesus again tells us, all right, look, I want you to examine yourself. It's Lent. He doesn't use those words, but that's what the story's there to do. And to examine yourself for something in particular. So what's that? It's for all the ways that perhaps you and I might be failing to take the hard things, the difficult things, or really to use the motifs of darkness and light. And that's what this story interacts with to take the dark things in our lives and to do what with them? To stuff them, to ignore them, to pretend they don't actually exist, and to allow them, therefore, to build resentment and anger and bitterness and cynicism and all of this other stuff that is crushing to our soul and our lives? No. It's for ways that we're failing to take the dark things in our lives and come come to our Lord and to say, here, (laughs) I'm going to entrust you with this. And here's why I'm going to entrust you with this. Because from the first couple pages of the Bible... I have learned that your signature move, like the thing you do, is you bring light out of darkness. What are the first creative words of the Lord? Let there be light. And there was light. That's what the Lord does. And when we take the dark things of our lives and we give them to Him, here's what He does. He starts to bring light out of our darkness. And He brings it to us, and He brings it to other people who, by the way, who are involved in our lives, all the people with whom we work and live and play, who witness how we handle this dark season of life, how we move through this dark season of life, how somehow we make it, or how maybe we die in this season of life. And in and through it, they see the light of the Lord. And here's what light does. And we all know this because we experience it every day. Light brings sight, right? You walk into a dark room. I mean, you have two choices. You can hit the light or you can do like this, right? And make your way through the room. That's the way that it goes because it's perilous in the dark. You can't see. You hit the lights. Everything's apparent. Okay, well, that's true spiritually too. 
And here's what spiritual light brings. Spiritual light brings sight of Jesus. It reveals to us who and what Jesus Christ really is. And here's who and what He's not. And we're going to watch this progression as we move through this story. He is not just a man. And spiritual light enables us to see that. Oh, by the way, and He's not just a prophet. And spiritual light enables us to see that. And oh, by the way, He's not just a really unique, like in all of human history, prophet sent by God Himself. He's more than that. Jesus Christ is is God Himself, clothed in the flesh and blood of man, come into the world to rescue and to redeem, and in the end, to fully restore it and make all things new, including every one of us who was given this gift of spiritual sight by which we see Christ for who and what He really is. Not just a man, not just a prophet, not just a really unique prophet. Wow, you know, there's like four or five people, and Jesus is one of them in human history. No, He's not. He's unique in all of human history. He is the living God come to rescue and to redeem and to restore you as you wake up to the reality that this God and grace entered into this world to live, to suffer, to die, and that's what we're moving through in Lent, and then to rise that He might defeat sin and death for you, and that He might take all of the dark things in your life and redeem them by using them to bring you and others light. So with all of that in mind then, We pick up our study today in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, where John says this. He says that as Jesus, who at this point in the narrative is in the city of Jerusalem, and he's walking with his disciples from one unknown location in the city of Jerusalem to another unknown location in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, well, as Jesus passed by, almost certainly one of the city gates that all of the people in the city would herd in and out of at least twice a day. He saw a man who was blind from birth, which is really important because right out of the gate, John is telling us, hey, this guy that Jesus encounters at this gate has lived in what? Because it's one of the motifs of the day. He's lived in darkness. Since his birth, he has never once known light. And that's not just true for him physically. As we get into the story, we realize, okay, you know what? That's true for him spiritually. But that also changes. So John says that as Jesus passed by one of the gates to the city of Jerusalem, he saw a man who was blind physically and spiritually from birth, and he passed him by, no doubt, while that guy was sitting there begging for money. And here's why I say no doubt he was begging for money. Because this is first century stuff, and back then they didn't have all of the amazing devices by which we can unlock the very real productive and creative energies and capacities of the blind. And so therefore, if you were blind, particularly from birth, you had basically one opportunity for employment or really, one opportunity by which to contribute in some way, shape, or form to the household income of the household that you you lived in. And what was that? It was to go beg by one of the city gates. Why? Because that's where everybody came in and that's where everybody came out. It's the perfect place to do it. It's like Broward and Federal, isn't it? It is. So then think about this man's life, because since he's a little boy, what does his life consist of? Every day he gets up and makes his way in darkness through the city of Jerusalem, or he's led in darkness through the city of Jerusalem, where he is deposited in the same spot, at the same gate, and he begs for money there, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, probably for at least a couple of decades. I think the indication in the story is that he's at least in his 20s, maybe his 30s. His parents are still alive. They refer to him as an adult. He's not a newcomer to the gate, guys. 
And everyone in the city who herds in and out of these gates at various times knows who he is. He's that guy by that gate. You know the people who ask for money in this town, don't you? And you drive by in your car with your windows up and your radio going. And I mean, let's just be honest, text messaging people and doing emails at the light and, you know, taking phone calls and getting all kinds of notifications and all these distractions. We go by fast. And nevertheless, we go by the same people and we know who they are and we know where they stand and we wonder about them when they don't show up for a couple of days. Well, these folks walked. It's a very different dynamic. When Beth and I got married, we moved to Chicago and I lived six blocks away from where I worked and we didn't have a car, which is kind of hard to believe, isn't it? But when you live in a city like that, you don't need one. In fact, it's kind of a liability. You've got to pay to park it. It's a bummer. So we sold our cars and I would walk the same six blocks to work every single day and the same six blocks back. Well, I met the same people asking for money at all the same locations. And here's what happens. You kind of sort of get to know them. And when they miss a couple days and they're back, you're relieved and you ask them how they're doing. That's who this guy was. They all know who he is. And so again, John says that as Jesus passed by one of the city gates, he saw a man who was blind physically and spiritually from birth, begging for money, same gate, same place, everybody knows who he is. And then Jesus' disciples asked Jesus the same question about suffering, incidentally, or about darkness, however you want to describe it, that we all ask when we, or maybe he, or maybe she, or maybe this whole group of people that we'll just call they, suffer. And here it is. Here's the question. Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? In other words, Jesus... Who can we blame for this? Because instinctively, it's really kind of what we want to do, isn't it? Like when we suffer, or when he suffers, or when she suffers, or when that whole group of people that we'll call they suffer, what do we do? Instinctively, we think to ourselves, hey, you know, um, I, or he, or she, or they, don't, and here's the operative language, deserve this. Like somehow I should be exempt from this, or he should be exempt from this, or she should be exempt from this, or they should be exempt from this. Like, why are we sharing in the human misery and the human condition in such a way as to, you know, have to deal with this, whatever this happens to be? And so then what do we do? We start laying blame. And if you're oriented to look outside of yourself, in other words, you're one of those people and you don't have to identify yourself right now if this is you, but you're one of those people who just kind of instinctively assumes that the problem is the other guys, right? So you start looking outside of yourself and you think, well, it might be that person's fault and that person's fault and that person's fault and that person's fault. And then we have this whole other group of people who immediately assume it's them. Something's wrong, it must be me, you know? And so you blame yourself, but almost without exclusion, we also blame God. He's rarely left out of the blame game equation. And then we allow these dark things to make us resentful and angry and bitter and cynical, all the while missing, and please don't miss this, the false assumption that our resentfulness and our anger and our bitterness and our cynicism is actually built upon. And, and what is that false assumption? It is that we or that he or that she or that they actually do deserve better. That we actually should be exempt from this. This actually should not occur. That we should not have to experience stuff like this. That there's something or someone outside of us to blame, and especially, perhaps, 
God is to blame. And I want you to work through that for a second. And here's how I'm looking at it, okay? Starting premise, God did not create a world full of suffering. In fact, let me go further. God created a world utterly and completely devoid of all suffering. So where did it come from? Because that exempts him from blame. So let's do that. Guys, it came from us. I mean, the reality is that in our pride and in our selfishness and in our self-worship, magnified, by the way, as many times over as there have ever been people living in this world, we ourselves have introduced into this world in varying degrees and in differing amounts, sure. But we've all participated in the introduction of all the human misery that has ever or ever will occur. In other words, the world is broken because we've broken it. It's an expression of our brokenness, of who we are in here, magnified by as many people as there are. And and we've brought that brokenness both into this world for ourselves and for others, and we all of us experience the consequences of it. When G.K. Chesterton, who was a great Catholic thinker, was alive, one of the brightest minds of his day, He participated in a survey that a newspaper sent out to all of these different people, scientists, philosophers, all like the brightest minds of his day. They sent out the same question to everybody, and the question is, what's wrong with the world? And he did not waste a lot of ink on his answer. He just took it and he wrote, I am. And he signed his name and mailed it in. He is. I am. You are, and so is everyone else. The world is an expression of who we are, and who we are is broken. And if you're coming to the world and go, oh, no, no, who we are is good, well, then explain police departments to me, explain the CIA to me, explain the FBI to me, explain everything you see on the news to me. My goodness, what you have to ignore to come to that conclusion. No, we're not fundamentally good, but Jesus is. And in our darkness, He shines light. But nevertheless, we move through our lives, and when we're afflicted, our instinct is to reject it and to go, good grief, I deserve better than this. He does, she does, they do. And that's what the disciples do here. So again, they ask Jesus this question, who, why was this man born blind? Rabbi, who sinned? Who can we blame for this? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And notice Jesus' answer, because his answer is neither. He says it was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned. So whereas, yes, it's true that the Bible teaches us that all of human misery and suffering is ultimately the result of sin. It's not ultimately and always the result of a particular sin. You can't always connect the dots. And when it is the result of a particular sin, it's not difficult to connect the dots. And I don't mean to be indelicate, but I want you to think about this because I think it helps. I think that if you drink yourself to death, then you drink yourself to death. And that is tragic. It is awful, and it is devastating for you and for everyone connected to you. But nobody has to pull a calculator out to do the math. Nobody's going, oh, I don't know. Do you think that maybe, possibly, yeah, no, you're not even asking the question. If you allow pornography to ruin you and your relationships and your marriage, then that's what happens. And it's tragic, and it's awful. It's devastating for you, and it's devastating for everyone connected to you. But, you know, we're not needing a map. Hey, how did we get from point A to point B? Let's get a map out, and we can trace out the road. don't need to do that, do you? 
Look, it's not always the result of a particular sin. And when it is, nobody asks this question because we already know the answer. And in this man's case, it's not the result of a particular sin. And so again, Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but instead, he says, this man suffered so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I want to make that personal for a minute because what Jesus is saying is that God at times will allow you to suffer so that God can then do what only God can do in you, for you, and through you. And sometimes he'll do that through a miraculous healing. You know, we Presbyterians have distanced ourselves way too much from that. Sometimes he'll do that through a miraculous healing the way that he's about to do for this man. That's what will happen. That's where we're going. But sometimes he will do it through what I think is an equally miraculous miracle, which is walking near to you, which is strengthening you, which is showing you that the joy that can be yours even in the midst of your suffering through Jesus Christ as you walk in light through the midst of dark seasons is your strength. That's helpful too. That's a miracle as well. But in either case, God uses the suffering if we'll give it to Him to bring spiritual light to us and others. And so again, John says that as Jesus passed by one of the city gates, he saw a man who was blind physically and spiritually from birth. He's begging, same place, same time, same guy. Everybody knows him at this gate. And Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that we can blame somebody for the fact that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but here's the reason. Instead, Jesus says, this man suffered all of these years in darkness so that the works of God, that's the operative language, might be displayed in him. And then in verse 6, we read that having said these things, notice what Jesus does and how he does it. Jesus gets down on his hands and knees in the dirt. So imagine this. And he spits on the ground. And with his saliva mixed with the dirt, he makes mud. And then he takes these little mud pie-like things and he anoints, he puts the mud pies on the blind man's eyes. And then he says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the word Siloam means sent. Why? Because it's a pool in which the, to which the water was sent from the Gihon Spring through Hezekiah's tunnel. And so he makes the mud with his saliva. He stands up, he puts the mud packs on the blind man's eyes, and then he says to the guy, all right, go wash up in the pool of Siloam. And so the guy goes. He goes to the pool of Siloam, and he washes, and he comes back seeing. And, you know, you're thinking, well, that's unusual, and, and that's impressive, and it's also a little bit odd, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of weird. It's you know, Because Jesus doesn't heal like this much. Like, you know, like... Normally, he just touches you and you're healed or something like that. He doesn't even need to be in the same room with you to make you heal. You know, there are healing instances in which he just says, you know what, go home and the person that you're worried about are, is going to be fine when you get there. So he doesn't have to do it this way. Why then does he do it this way? Because it presupposes a purpose. And I think the answer to that is found at the beginning of the Bible. When you go all the way back to those first couple of pages, how does God create the first pair of human eyes? Same way He does the first pair of human hands or feet or arms or legs or ears or whatever else. 
The Lord God forms the man from the, the dirt, the soils, the dust of the earth. So then how does Jesus give perfectly functioning eyes? How does He create for this man eyes for an otherwise fully functioning body? It's the only missing parts. He does it in the same way. And so what is he doing? It's like he's jumping up and down and going, hey guys, if you're wondering who I am, let me help clear this up for you. I'm not a man. I'm not a prophet. Don't even throw me in there with Gandhi, okay? That's not who I am. I'm the creator God of the universe. I've entered into this world on a rescue, redemption, restoration mission in love. I am coming to the world that has been ruined, and not by me, but by you. And I've come to restore it and you if you can see me for who I really am. If you will give me uh, credit for who I really am, and if you'll receive on your behalf what I've really done for you. Jesus isn't just interested in healing this man's eyes. It's a big deal, but that's, that's a very small piece he wants to give this man spiritual sight and beyond that, spiritual sight to everybody else in town who goes, wow, I've been walking by that guy for 20 years. I know that he's been born blind. I heard about how Jesus did. You know, I've actually read that first part of the Bible. I'm kind of making the connection between the dirt and the hole and that's who God is and Jesus and you get the idea. And it's especially curious to me, I mean, speaking of the works of God, that Jesus uses saliva as a part of this. And, you know, like, not just because I'm a germaphobe. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If he did that to me and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, I'd be running, like, you know, in the dark. Just got to get this off me right now. I'm freaking out, okay? But think about it for a minute. Why is that a big deal, saliva? Because to spit in someone's face, and that's where the spit went for this guy, on his face, in any culture, any day, any age, massively insulting. In that culture, far more massively insulting than we have the capacity to understand. Big deal. And yet Jesus takes the emblem of this insult and what does he turn it into? He turns it into a blessing for this man, but not just this man, because as we move into Holy Week, what are we going to find? We're going to find Christ in his sufferings for us being spit upon in the face and receiving the insult that he might bless us, that he might restore us, that he might forgive us. Anyway, those are the kinds of things that only God can do. So the man goes to the pool of Siloam. He comes back washed. He comes back seeing. Unbelievable. And understandably, then people start freaking out. And if you've done your personal worship, you know the first kind of group of people to freak out are the man's neighbors. And they're actually arguing over whether or not it's him. Like they've watched him grow up his whole life. And they're going, no, this is so incredible it can't be him. It must just look like him. And so he starts arguing with them. No, 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 it's actually me. You know, he gives them examples. You know, he says to his neighbors, hey, you know, when your car disappeared and you wondered why it ended up in the ditch and all that. I mean, this is the kind of thing only I would know. That was your son. Sorry. You know, so he starts giving them reasons to understand. Oh, oh, it really is him. They're convinced that it's him now. And they say, well, how did this happen? Like, who did this for you? And watch the progression of the language. He says, well, the man... Jesus. So he sees, but not clearly yet, spiritually. The man Jesus did this for me. And they say, well, this, this is a work of God, right? So they grab this man and they take him to the religious establishment. They bring him to the Pharisees. And what they want is an official religious ruling. They want the religious leaders to go, my goodness, 
God has done a work here. And we sanction it like we are officially going, yep, no doubt. And then the Pharisees freak out. And they're freaked out not because this man's been healed, which is itself kind of astonishing, but they're freaked out because Jesus did the healing and because Jesus did the healing on the Sabbath and because one of their man-made rules, not one of the rules of the Lord, but one of their man-made rules about the Sabbath is thou shalt not heal because, you know, why would you want to do anything good for anybody on a Sabbath day on the Sabbath? (laughs) And Jesus is now healed on the Sabbath. And so these guys, and you've got to think about these guys. So these guys, half of them are going, clearly he's a sinner because he violated one of our rules. So God could not have done this. But then the other half are going, yeah, but like we know the Bible better than anybody and our Hebrew Old Testament, what we would call that scriptures or Bible. I mean, page two, man, God creates from the dust. That's what the Lord, well, Jesus just did for this guy. And not only that, but then as you begin to roll through what we call the Old Testament, you find God laying claim and alone to the ability to restore sight to the blind. And then more than that, when you look at what's said about what the Messiah would do, one of the marks of the Messiah is to restore sight to the blind. And in fact, when you study the various miracles and you begin to class them that Jesus has done, you realize that that Jesus healed the blind more than any other kind of miracle that he performed. So what do these guys have to do in order to say, nope, he's a sinner for violating our rule? They have to go like this. They have to intentionally blind themselves to what the Word of the Lord says and to what Jesus has done. And so anyway, they're arguing it out over who Jesus is, and they call the man in. And so they say to him, this formerly blind man, Here's what we're debating. Who do you think Jesus is? And he says, well, now listen, he's getting a little closer. He says, I think he's a prophet. All right. So then they bring in the man's parents because they're not satisfied with this. And they begin to question the parents. Okay, is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. Has he ever been able to see? No. Has he ever been able to see anything? I mean, even a little bit. No. So his whole life, he hasn't been able to see. That's correct. Do you have any idea why it is that now he's got like 2015 vision, like he sees better than everyone in the room? Any idea how that happened? And they start to freak out because this is the religious establishment. These guys have power to excommunicate them from their community, from their synagogue. That has all kinds of religious and social and economic implications to it. And so they kind of punt and go, eh, you know what? He's an adult. You should talk to him. He's actually very well spoken. And so then we read this in verse 24. John says that for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God, which means tell us what we want to hear. Because we know that this man Jesus is a sinner. So they've all agreed to put their hands in front of their eyes. They've gained consensus on the fact that, nope, we're going to blind ourselves to this one. Notice what he says. He's brilliant. He answered, he says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But there is one thing I do know something you might want to think about. And that is that though I was blind, now I see. There it is. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, look guys, I've told you already. And you would not listen when I told you already. So why do you want to hear it again? And then he takes a jab at them. Probably not a good move. 
But he says to them, do you also want to become his disciples? Knowing what their answer is, don't you think? And so then, predictably, they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. And at times, that will be true for you too. You'll be misunderstood. You'll be, you know, reviled as a disciple of Jesus. But you can't allow that to silence you. I think you learn from this man's example in that regard. So anyway, they reviled him. And they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Even though we have to ignore everything that we know to make that statement. And so the man answered, and he said, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Come on, guys. I even know he's saying the Old Testament well enough to figure this one out. This is not a complicated riddle. And then he continues and he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And as a man born blind, I've researched that. So yeah. So if this man were not from God... He could do nothing, which means that his spiritual sight is getting clear. He started with a man, then a prophet. Now, he's a prophet sent from God, but he's still not quite there. And they answered him and they said, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Well, no, because you're not humble enough to listen. Well, no, because you're chosen not to hear not to see, and they cast him out, meaning they did to him what his parents were fearful that they would do to them. And then this is my favorite part of the deal. It says Jesus heard that they had cast him out of his synagogue and community, and so what does he do? Having searched for him until he found him is the idea. Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Because he's not just a man, and he's not just a prophet, and he's not just a prophet sent from God. Really unique. I mean, you know, like top five in all of humanity. He is God as his works have clearly displayed. And he's come to give you sight. Spiritually in this case. And spiritually for us. And the man answered and said to him, Who is he, sir? So that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have what? Because it's something you can't do in the dark. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord... I believe, and he worshipped Jesus, which incidentally is what happens when you believe. And then Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see like this man may see, and that those who like the Pharisees and who have decided not to see (laughs) may become blind. But why did they decide not to see? Because they realized if Jesus is God, if He is the Messiah, if He is the King, if He is the Father represented to us in human flesh, if He is who He claims to be, then I've got to give my everything to Him. I have to subject myself to Him, which ironically is the greatest thing that anybody can possibly do. I get to live for the highest and most dignified purpose 
that there is? Or like these guys, I can hang on to my status and I can hang on to my this and I can hang on to my that and I can hang on to them and all the while as my hands are gripped around them tightly, I can't open them to receive what is freely given by the Lord. Oh, Jesus says, for judgment I've came into the world and I'm going to judge between those who see and those who don't because they're unwilling, they're unwilling to do so. So light brings sight. And spiritual light brings sight of Jesus. And one of the most powerful means that Jesus uses to bring us spiritual sight of himself is through the darkness that he allows us to experience in this life. And so then here's what Lent calls us to do. It's to repent of all the ways that we've blamed that on others and on ourselves, and most particularly on God himself. And as a result, all of the ways that we've cultivated resentment and anger and bitterness and, and all of that. And instead to go, you know what, Lord, I can't bring light out of this. <laughs> That's your signature move. So uh, here you go. And then tomorrow when I get up, I'm going to give it to you again. And then the next day, I'm going to give it to you again. And then the next day, and here's what in faith I'm going to begin to do. I'm going to begin to look for how it is that you want to take this and in ways that I can't even begin to imagine, bring out of it light. Light for me and those in my life who are watching me go through this. Okay? So that's what I want to challenge you to do. Two questions. Number one, what dark thing do you need to entrust to the Lord? Give to Him. It's freeing. And then secondly, how might He desire to use that thing to bring spiritual light to you and through you to other people? And here's why I ask that question, because sometimes you know the answer to that, but even if you don't know the answer to that, what it does is it creates an expectancy, and then you begin to look for the answer to that. And you typically find what you're looking for. So what dark thing do you need to entrust to the Lord? And how might He be desiring right now to use whatever that is to bring spiritual light to you or to other people who are involved in your life and who are watching you in faith move through this? That's the way it works. Light brings sight. And spiritual light brings sight of Jesus. Okay? So think on that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that this one that we have come to worship um, this morning is not just a man. <laughs> we thank you that he is not just a prophet. We thank you that he is not just a prophet sent from God. We thank you that he is God made man entered into this world to rescue and to redeem and to restore, to make this world new in the end, all things new. But in between then and now to make us new, and we thank you even, Lord, for the way that you use dark things. There is no hope of light in the darkness apart from the one who alone has the power to bring it. And so then I pray that you would give us the strength and courage and faith and friendship within this community necessary to stop hiding it, to stop cultivating it, to stop protecting it, to stop ignoring it, to stop rejecting it as though if I just ignore it long enough, it'll go away. And, and to come forward in faith with it and to entrust you with it. And then to have the faith necessary to begin even now to look for the ways that you want to redeem it, that you want to use it to bring light to us and to one another. 
So let there be light, we ask, O oh God, in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, and not just so that we can experience light and benefit, but so that the work of God, to the glory of God, might be manifest and displayed in us. Do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.